0: Welcome back to Defence Talk, securing a key advantage, a podcast brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with the Trade Association, ADS Group and sponsored by Industry Powerhouse, BAE Systems. Every two weeks, our podcast discusses key questions that shape defence, technological and national security agendas in the UK and explores the main themes in British defence in the context of intensifying geopolitical competition. We often hear that the second anniversary of the war in Ukraine is approaching later this month. However, Russia first invaded Ukraine in 2014 when it annexed Crimea and this is why experts and reporters refer to the events of the 24th of February 2022 as the day Russia renewed its aggression against Ukraine. It therefore has been almost a decade since Ukraine has been fighting for its territory sovereignty and freedom and is currently engaged in a major counter-offensive with the help of Western military assistance to retake all of its sovereign territory claimed by Russia, including Crimea. In today's episode, dedicated to drawing attention to the ongoing biggest conflict since the Second World War on the European continent, we will discuss the current situation on the front line, why this matters to the UK and our security, what the UK is currently doing to support Ukraine, how Ukraine perceives the war, and what further support they are asking for from their allies and partners, and what is next. I'm Victoria Starik simulin co-founder and director of strategy at the Council on Geostrategy, and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Andy Stardt, chief executive of defense equipment and support at the Ministry of Defense, and Margaliotti, world leading expert on modern Russia. Andy is the Chief Executive of Defence Equipment and Support at the Ministry of Defence and is the UK's National Armaments Director. In this role, Andy is directly responsible to Parliament for the stewardship of DENS's resources, which includes providing equipment and logistical support to current operations, delivering funded equipment acquisition and support outputs, and representing UK interests in international military and political fora. Mark Oliotti is the Director of Mayak Intelligence and an Honorary Professor in the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at University College London. He is one of the world's leading experts on modern Russia and has authored over 30 books, including Putin's War, The Weaponization of Everything, and We Need to Talk About Putin. Mark is also an Associate Fellow at the Council on Geostrategy. Mark and Andy, welcome.
1: Good to be here.
2: Thanks. very good to be here and uh, and thanks for, uh, for inviting us.
0: So I'm really keen to kickstart this conversation by discussing the current status on the front line. So let's perhaps focus first of all, what is going on right now? Mark, it's been nearly two years on from when Russia renewed its aggression and over six months since Ukraine began its much anticipated counter offensive. What is the current status of the war? I
1: okay. mean, a lot of this has actually revolved around semantics on whether we can call it a stalemate or not.
0: And I think
1: in a way we can call it, shall we say, a dynamic stalemate, bearing in mind that stalemates get broken. So it's not some kind of prediction for the future. We found that the Ukrainian counteroffensive of last year was, we have to be honest, much less successful than they and we had hoped. And although the Ukrainians have been made a lot of gains, for example, in, in the Black Sea, most recently with the sinking of the uh, large landing ship, Cesar Kunikov, Nonetheless, when it comes to the actual sort of territorial grounds, although Russia is making a very hard and frankly, very, very bloody push for the, the city of Avdivka, or if we're honest, the rubbled ruins of what used to be the city of Avdiivka, essentially, we're in a situation in which the front lines are fairly static and they are likely to remain so for quite some time because neither side really seems to have the kind of capacity for major offensive operations at, the, at present.
0: Andy, many claim that this ongoing war is descending into a war of industrial production. What does this term mean and is there any truth to this?
2: So, so I think, I mean, to, to answer your kind of wider question for a minute, I think Russia expected very little resistance uh, at the beginning of the war and a quick vitri- victory. And what it's got uh, has been the complete opposite. Um, what we see um, from the Ukrainians, are met in country, is is a resolute commitment to their sovereignty and maintaining their freedoms. And we've 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 also seen a resolute level of support from the forty plus nations who are supporting Ukraine. So I think uh, I, I think that's been a real surprise to Russia and. The fact that Ukraine has liberated over half its territory uh, that it originally lost at the beginning of the most recent conflict, I think that was really quite a shock. Um, as you describe, um, it's it's now very clear it's going to be a long war, and in a long war, you move from a a status of uh, of using up gifted gifted equipment to being a, to having to industrialise. Um, uh, the replenishment of that equipment, and therefore, a, a war of industrial production is a is a reasonable uh, a reasonable description of where we're now at. Can uh, uh, Russia uh, continue to maintain uh, uh, maintain its equipment and its uh, and its uh, supplies of munitions against an environment where it's under pretty extreme sanctions? Um, can the 40-plus countries supporting Ukraine maintain their long-term uh, um, uh, uh, commitment and, uh, and resources uh, to be able to make sure that Ukraine is able to, uh, to match and overmatch that requirement? I mean, my, my perspective is uh, that the resolve that uh, the Ukrainian allies have shown has been pretty strong and pretty remarkable, and, and I don't see that fading away anytime soon.
0: Mark, in your view, how both sides are faring? Yes, I when
1: it comes down to it, I mean, look, this is, this is, as you said, a war of industrial production. This is also a war of national will. And although so far, obviously, the Ukrainians have demonstrated a, a quite formidable uh, willingness mm. to protect their own country. And we have to recognize the degree to which actually this is in many ways the true formative moment of a true Ukrainian nation, you know, Ukraine has been through a whole series of, of nation-building attempts, which haven't quite culminated. And I think, under the pressure of war, we, we really can say that there is now a, a true Ukrainian nation. I mean, in that context, the question is their capacity to continue to absorb what are really terrible casualties. I mean, we must remember that you know, if if we're in a, a war of attrition, which is the stage we're at at present. Russia has something like four times the current Ukrainian population, and therefore, although the Russians clearly are, are suffering much greater losses in terms of human lives, wounded as well as material, um, the point is they they have more that they can draw on. And of course, Russia is an authoritarian regime, in which actually the the state can lean that much more heavily on its own people. Though even then, it, you know, the very fact that that Putin has held back from another mobilisation wave which was clearly tre- tremendously unpopular and disruptive the first time round, shows that he does have to consider, you know, even autocrats have to do, consider to a degree what's going to push their population to, to some kind of response. So, you know, I think in many ways we, we are dealing with, with imponderables. We're dealing with imponderables about the continued will and capacity of the Western alliance or the, the global alliance, frankly, to, to support Ukraine. We are talking about the imponderables, about the, the capacity of the Ukrainians to continue to sort of suffer the, these losses. I mean, it's interesting that at the moment, one of the kind of real hot button issues in Kiev is a new law on, cons- on conscription, which in many ways became the sort of the, the, the final straw that broke the relationship between President Zelensky and his former commander in chief, General Zoluzhny. And also the, the, the final element is, of course, the, the, the uh, vicissitudes of, of, of the battlefield. I think we're we are in a situation where like it or not almost certainly 2024 will for the ukrainians be a building year with the idea that come 2025 they will be in a much stronger position in terms of that their, their materiel their preparedness their training and so forth to launch another major counteroffensive but that's that's a very hard thing for 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 any country to actually cope with the idea that all the privations all the problems that they're currently suffering they're going to have to to suffer for at least a year before they even have the hope of making some kind of real movement on the right. battlefield. So this is this is very much, as I say, I, I think a point where we have to balance the the competing no not the competing the, the the separate indices of the sort of the objective factors how many troops have they got in the field what kit have they got and so forth with the very subjective ones about the continued national morale the will and just simply the capacity of the Ukrainians to fight.
0: Let's try to connect the dots and understand better why this war matters to the UK and also our national security interest. So, Andy, in your view, does the UK and European security or even perhaps global security more widely, is it threatened by Russia's war against Ukraine in your view?
2: Um, Well, I think um, certainly uh, the UK government and the UK Ministry of Defence um, in the recent uh, integrated review and defence command paper refresh sets out that Russia is probably the most pressing threat to European security. Um, And uh, it it states the criticality of making sure that um, uh, Putin and others uh, understand that uh, that we will stand together with our allies when people uh, when people are prepared to flout the international rule of law and national sovereignty. Um, at a uh, at a policy level, that's really clear. Um, at a kind of more visceral or personal level, I think um, all, all of our nation's values stand up for um, driving peace and prosperity. In fact, it's it's the mission of UK defence. To, uh, to, to protect the nation and help it prosper. Um, so working with our allies to help them do the same is, is for me an obvious human thing for us to want to need to do. But if we're being more selfish uh, and we're being more uh, d- just parochial about what, what does it mean to us? I think, I think it's helpful to recognize that the conflict so far has mass- massively destabilized international trade it has driven it has driven inflation. Uh, it has it has affected every family in this country and every family across Europe. Um, and and so restoring um, international borders and restoring uh, a peaceful environment uh, and being clear to anybody who wants to uh, um, think that. Uh, um, International adventurism, or however you wish to, to describe um, Putin's ideas, um, are just not acceptable. I think you've got to contain that dynamic um, because of the knock-on consequences. And, and if you play it the other way around and say, you know, what are the consequences of, of, uh, of Putin being successful? Well, if, if Putin was successful, it would not. Uh, it would. It would not only put us in a position that was much closer to a kind of Cold War scenario. Um, uh, but it would also encourage others to be in the same place. And it's helpful for, for us to reflect that when we were in the, in the Cold War, we were spending um, two and a half, three times as much on defense as we're having to spend today. So the economic consequences to, uh, to, to um, our nation and uh, uh, nations across, uh, across the free world is enormous if Russia is seen to be successful. So for all those reasons, um, it's uh, this really matters to the UK in terms of our own security, but also to our long term prosperity and the prosperity of uh, uh, of the world, frankly.
0: Indeed. Um, Andy, at DSEI. Um, Last year, last autumn, um, you spoke about Today Tomorrow Together strategy where you stated that Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 brought large scale, high intensity land warfare back to Europe with implications for the UK's approach to deterrence and defence. Could you please maybe elaborate a bit more? How has DNS responded?
2: So, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I I have to say, um, although defence acquisition in this country gets... uh, uh, a lot of criticism, and and there is no doubt that there is uh, a lot that we can and a lot that we that we are doing to um, improve our uh, performance in that space. Um, uh, we have seen both uh, the Ministry of Defence, DNS, and uh, UK industry respond phenomenally to the Ukraine conflict um, in in terms of uh, in terms of the pace with which we have responded. Uh, we got our first contracts out within forty-eight hours, and we've placed uh, we've placed billions of pounds worth of contracts with industry, both for uh, for acquisition and replenishment. So, uh, so, so for me, it's actually a it's a it's a great story of seeing how we can get together in the in the today space of of actually responding at real pace. Our um, strategy within DNS specifically um is to be in a place where we're really responding well uh at pace for all of today's operations and ukraine is only one of what we're what we're managing at the moment um we're seeking to be in a place where for tomorrow we are um uh, spiraling in cap- capability at much greater pace than, than we historically have through the peace dividend uh, and then in uh, and then um we have to really strengthen the relationships that we have uh, both with our international partners uh, and with industry so that we pull the best of ideas into uh, the solutions together. So it creates a much stronger partnership than we've, than we've had uh, necessarily over the, over the last decade or so. So that underpins the uh, our strategic today, tomorrow together story that you'll have heard me talk about um, that underpins our strategy.
0: Mark, well, the UK has certainly been one of the leading supporters um, of Ukraine uh, over recent years, and particularly in this conflict. But um, before we discuss in further detail what the UK is currently doing to support Ukraine, could we please perhaps also touch on the question of the middle ground states? Because we know that there are a number of states around the world that have not, well, openly condemned Russia's aggression against Ukraine or have maintained an attitude where they did not express support for one side or the other. What role can the UK play in order to ensure that there's bigger support on a global scale for Ukraine?
1: Before I answer, if I may, let me just add an extra little coda to why you, the war in Ukraine matters to the UK, if I may. And that is, I, th- I think that people almost forget this, that you know we very much think in terms of, you know, direct impact on us, on the international order, or the credibility of NATO and the like. But I think we also have to think about Ukraine and Russia, both countries, which are not going to go away and will will matter. I mean, Ukraine is clearly destined to become a serious player probably within the European Union, quite possibly within NATO, and certainly just generally with, with, within the European continent. And, and it, in many ways, it is upon this war and our response to Ukraine, which determines whether Ukraine becomes a Russian satrapy, an embittered rump state that, that feels ultimately it was let down by the West, or actually a productive, democratizing ally. So I think you know, that matters, first of all, and also Russia itself. Again, Russia's not going away. And in part, I think that the very robustness of the response provides some kind of hope. And I say this on the day that we learn that the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, has just died in prison. So you know, it's very hard to think of hope when it comes to Russia. But there is hope. This is a country which has never had to deal with its imperial demons. With the 1917 revolution, all the bad stuff that happened, oh, no, no, that was the czars. 1991, end of the Soviet Union, all the bad stuff that happened, oh, no, no, that was the communists. And I think, actually, there is the opportunity, the, poss- the possibility, that, in fact, a defeat in Ukraine can actually be the point where Russia and Russia's rulers are forced to recognize, firstly, that, this is, that they are no longer a great global superpower, and also to confront their imperialist assumptions about their place within post-Soviet Eurasia. So I think this is also something that we need to consider because, again, so long as the UK is a global pl- power, and it will remain so, it actually has to think about the status of, of other global powers. Now, to, to return to the point... Uh, about the, the, the UK and, and the middle ground states. I think th- th- there is a degree in which actually the West is suffering from its own hubris and mistakes in the past. There is a sense, frankly, amongst many countries and especially in the global South, that essentially we we care about Ukraine because it's European and we, we haven't really cared about them, that, that we have been hypocrites and the like. The UK clearly has both strengths and weaknesses because of its colonial past. I mean, the weakness is precisely it lends, you know, it, it can be very easily portrayed by the Russians as it is, as still sort of essentially a, a pith-helmeted colonial power trying to tell other countries what to do. And the Russians are making a very, very effective, frankly, push to talking to what they call the world majority, um, exactly to try and present themselves as just simply pushing back against an American-dominated Western hegemony. But on the other hand, we also have to recognise the degree to which the UK does have unique links. With, with countries all around the world. And not just purely historical ones, but current ones, trading ones, security ones as well. I mean, one can look at things like AUKUS, which are okay with much more kind of tra- traditional allies, but, but they show that actually the UK is operating on a global level. And I think we we frankly, for the first year or so of the war, I've got to be honest, we neglected that. We assume that the the, the sparring oral correctness of the Ukrainians position and our support for it was enough. Well, no, it's a, it's a nasty old world out there. We actually have to show how this connects to, to other countries interests. And I think again, you know, we have seen the UK and particularly obviously the FCDO in this case begin to actually step up to the challenge and make the point that in fact, a a world in which might makes right is actually a very uncomfortable world for a lot of other countries and that therefore even if they don't actually care about ukraine they should care about the wider implications for the international order and international law if ukraine loses
2: can i can i just build a little bit on uh, on both your question and mark's comments you you, you talked about the middle ground states i think uh, i think what is interesting is just how many states are in the very clearly supporting ukraine for the reason uh, for for, uh, for the reasons of of holding international law um uh, we, uh, I'm privileged enough to be the national armaments director, who sits within the conference of national armaments directors in NATO. And as I, I've, I'm an industrialist by background. I've been in this role 18 months. Um, <clears throat> so I, so I, on my first outing in the uh, in the NATO uh, floorplate, I could I could almost feel the acceleration that was happening in the room as as NATO accelerated from a place where uh the, the cold war uh, post-cold war peace dividend had, had meant that its role was not uh was not strong to a place where it, it absolutely understood its place in the world and i could see uh the nations accelerating into needing to lean into the problem um and what was really exciting for me was it wasn't just uh the nato uh, nations recognizing that nato needs to make sure that it, it had strong uh, had, had strengthened its position and its borders, but I, I could see a coalition of the willing, well beyond just the 31 plus one nations in NATO, um, but many, many others around the world leaning into the Ukrainian problem. Um, I, I also get as as, as director, I get to sit in the Ukraine Contact Group, which is the collection of countries who are working together to support the Ukrainian effort, and the pace in the Ukrainian Contact Group. Um, uh, of national Armands directors was quite phenomenal. Um, particular plaudits to uh, to my counterpart in the u s, Dr. Bill plant, who galvanized uh, a speed of decision making amongst uh, amongst a coalition of the willing. it was it was a privilege to be part of as you saw uh, countries uh, mobilize through that change process. So I think that I think, um, I think both NATO should be proud of the way that it, uh, it uh, st- stood up and supported, and more widely, I think the international community should, be, um, should celebrate the fact that, it, uh, that uh, uh, their response was galvanised and at pace to try to maintain the international rule of law.
0: Yes, well, we certainly have stepped up to, to the challenges, as Mark referred to it um, a couple of minutes ago. Um, and, and the UK has proven to be one of the leading countries when it comes to direct support to Ukraine. So a House of Commons library research briefing from January 2024 states that the US is the largest provider of military assistance to Ukraine as of December 27 2023. And since the start of the Biden administration, the US has provided $44.9 billion in security assistance. And then following the US, it is the UK who is one of the leading donors to Ukraine. So we have pledged almost £12 billion overall to Ukraine so far. And of course, well, it's not uh, it, it's not only military assistance, but that of course includes um, lethal and non-lethal weaponry, um, training programs, and medical equipment and other basics. So, Andy, you have started uh, a bit elaborating on um, your role as as in the D E N S and also as the UK National Armaments Director, and the work done by D E N S more broadly. Um, could you please explain in further detail how? Your work has contributed to the collective support for Ukraine.
2: Uh, no, absolutely. Um, so um, my team has ended up uh, to- together with um, some some really hardworking individuals within uh, MoD main building. Um, but my team, uh, led by uh, a new operations director that I stood up uh, when early in post, to uh, to following through the war. I mean, that's that started with. Um, uh, gifting in kind, so together with other nations really leaning in and providing absolutely critical equipment. Uh, in the first few days that was about making sure that uh, Ukraine had um, the anti-tank weapons that they needed to be able to, to stop the initial column uh, of tanks coming in, um, and then as progressed through to, uh, to the UK being at the, the bleeding edge of providing uh, um, state-of-the-art capabilities. We were, we were obviously first with first with modern tanks. Uh, we were first with long-range strike missiles, uh, and, and the effects of Storm Shadow I think are uh, 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 quite clear in terms of in terms of really uh, helping the Ukrainians, but also uh, in terms of gifting um, thousands of rounds of ammunition. Um, we've, we've delivered over three hundred thousand rounds of, uh, of artillery ammunition, for example, and millions of rounds of small uh, small arms um on top of that uh we in the initial phase uh we, we uh, we've, we've been maintaining since actually since the uh, uh, crimean uh, the invasion of crimea uh, we have been working to support the ukrainians and and part of that is, has been the work that we've done uh in uh, train, uh in supporting the field army uh, and actually meant multiple of our allies in training Ukrainian personnel. So uh, together, we've uh, um, uh, the UK has trained over thirty-four thousand um, Ukrainian personnel since uh, June two thousand and twenty-two, and for every person uh, that we train, we fully kit them out. And I think people uh, people don't necessarily realise the scale of effort that it requires to provide every one of them with with uniforms, with boots, with uh, uh, with uh, body armour, with night vision goggles. Uh, with med- with the medical kits uh, and, uh, uh, and so on, to make sure that they are ready to go into the fight, trained as professional soldiers. So huge amount of work on that, that, we, that we're very, very proud of. And then as time has gone on, we've progressed from gifting and training to uh, both rapid acquisition and an enormous amount of innovation with UK SMEs as, as the war has evolved. In terms of rap- rapid acquisition, We've done over three billion pounds worth of acquisition from from both uk uh, industry but also international uh, international supplies to make sure we recognizing that ukraine is uh, is operating with a mix of Western NATO equipment and legacy Soviet kit uh, and on the innovation side um, the uh, the work done and I won't go into the details because of the because of the classification core but the work done by some of our Uh, UK based SMEs uh, with innovative solutions to difficult problems has been really phenomenal. So uh, a a journey of transitioning through uh, and then, um, uh, as as we'll talk about in a bit, we're now working on how do we also enhance uh, Ukrainian industry.
0: Mark, in your view, what impact does the UK support have on the overall military balance in this conflict?
1: Well, of course, you know there are different. There are different systems and so forth, which, which have been significant. And particularly, uh, as Andy mentioned, I mean the Storm Shadow, and very very clearly identify the impact that had on giving the Ukrainians new capabilities, new range, and forcing the Russians into adaptations that further degraded their their capacity to fight. I think I'd I'd want to put it more more broadly. I mean, look, you know. 12 billion in assistance, as you say, not all of that that military, of course, it's going to have an, an impact. But I think particularly the UK's role in some ways has been as the icebreaker, has been as the the nation which has been able to unlock other kinds of aid. I mean, take, take the, for example, the, the decision to provide Challenger 2 tanks, a relatively small number of tanks compared with the overall Ukrainian need, and also carrying with it, you know, some very, very specific needs in terms of acquiring the the, the ability to maintain it and the like. But the point is the decision to actually provide challenges unlocked much wider programs both of the Americans providing M1 Abrams and more to the point a variety of European countries providing Leopard 2s and one could also say arguably with with the storm shadows likewise that actually opened the way for for further provision of precision guided long-range systems so I think often actually it's precisely because the UK has been willing and able to be a relatively early provider and to break I hesitate to call them taboos, but certainly sort of some kind of assumptions, particularly in perhaps some of the more, for want of a better word, timid European countries who weren't quite willing to to provide them. The UK steps forward and then because the sky does not fall, actually, then we we see a lot more assistance being unlocked. So that's one key role. And secondly, I think I'd, I'd also want to, to go back to this issue of the, the training programme you know, sort of under the wider sort of framework of you know, Operation Interflex is that, you know, yes, of course, it's really important to provide the kind of, you know, basic infantry skills, something that the, the, the British military historically, you know, ha- has a particular strength in. But I think we also sh- should note the degree to which actually the UK has been exceedingly important in providing both guidance and assistance to higher level Ukrainian commanders, Um, in different styles of war. I mean, particularly the former Commander-in-Chief Zalushny was was especially keen on trying to break out of the old Soviet ways of war, which still had quite a strong grip, especially on the higher echelons of the uh, Ukrainian officer corps. Um, And and Britain, I think, again, played a disproportionately influential role in providing that, but also actually, obviously, discussed least. We don't know the or or anything like the details, and nor should we, but if one looks at cooperation in intelligence sharing. Again, this is an area in which Britain has has a strength that, that pushes it, you know, obviously no one can really challenge the United States in terms of their sort of scale of their intelligence community, but, you know, amongst the everyone else's, You know, Britain really is in in the the sort of first tier, and in that context, that clearly has led to not just direct intelligence sharing with the Ukrainians, but also actually providing further expertise, guidance on on their own operations. So I think in, in this respect, we can see a full spectrum of assistance being provided, which is both very important in and of itself, but also important politically for unlocking additional assistance from other countries.
0: It is, of course, also important to understand the Ukrainian perspective on it, and I would like to touch uh, on what further support the Ukrainians have been asking um, recently from their allies and partners. Andy, has there been a change in focus regarding what Ukraine has asked for over the past couple of months, for example?
2: Well, I won't. I won't speak to specific uh, specific technologies for. Obvious reasons. Of course. What I will say is, what I will say is, uh, will say is um, there has definitely been a shift through from um, d- just looking at um, gifting equipment to uh, to progressively wanting to help build them into a modern uh, NATO-facing um, uh, capable military. So a, pro- a progressive increase in uh, a progressive transition away from Soviet equipment to military equipment. Um, and uh, there has been, uh, there is a shift now towards recognizing that they need to build up uh, domestic um, capability as well. They they, they speak to uh, this war of industrial production, meaning that the Ukrainians want to want to step up to doing everything they possibly can in country, and actually are doing some very impressive things in country, which we are helping them do. And we're uh, and we're and we're seeking to, to strengthen the relationships between our defence industries and their domestic defence industries to help uh, give them a more, a, more autonomy um, and b uh, to really leverage that um, national, uh, national enthusiasm. Um, we, when we spoke earlier on about the, the difference in uh, uh, mindsets in, in different countries, we have to recognise Ukraine is an invaded country that is protecting its homeland. Uh, Russia is on a war of adventurism for, to, to satisfy the the, the whims of a, 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 a political aspiration. That creates very different mindsets, uh, and one of the things that they can really leverage in um, uh, in Ukraine, uh, and I heard this in in Spade when I was out in Kiev just before Christmas, uh, is the fact that um, everybody, wherever they are in society, wants to help and contribute. So, so we we see people who were traditionally in uh, the commercial electronics sector or in uh, or in um, car manufacturing or uh, or or, in the, or industrial sector, they're all wanting to lean into the war effort and apply their level of innovation and um, uh, skill sets to be able to do things locally. So supporting that uh, those people who have skills, but not necessarily uh, defense experience, to be able to uh, to scale up their domestic industrial ca- capability. Has been a real shift that we're seeing, as well as a continued continued ask and expectation for long-term support uh, and for continued supplies of munitions and so on. Um, The UK has been um, uh, at the forefront again of of leaning into that request uh, from from the Ukrainians, but it's also been in a place where it's saying it's here for the long term. Um, The Prime Minister uh, recently in country Um, uh, made a commitment to a long-term security agreement to really emphasise the fact that that we're not going away anytime soon, uh, and increased the level of of UK spending up by another 200 million uh, to 2.5 billion for the next next financial year. So really uh, leaning in and showing uh, that we're not going to get tired soon. And that's a really important message for all of the allies to help Ukraine deliver which is uh, which is uh, you know you may think you can outlast, um, but actually you won't.
0: So in August, BE Systems signed agreements with the Ukrainian government to establish a local presence and to increase their support for Ukraine's armed forces. And also in September, the same company also secured an additional 130 million of pounds of new orders for the supply of munitions to the UK MOD. And in December, also BE Systems and AMS Integrated Solutions signed an agreement that offers repair and support services to the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, of course, there are other companies as well involved in this effort, and I guess, well, the question is, keeping in mind the fact that there have been so many positive developments, and that we have proven to be in this for long term, not only for the short term. What, in your view, will the next phase of support look like?
2: So, Mark, if I go first, maybe you want to you want to build on that with me. Um, so, in order to help that process of uh, of getting. Uh, UK industry to continue to step up and and support uh, and to work with Ukrainian industry, Uh, we created a thing called Task Force Hearst, which is is our combined effort uh, as uh, as a nation uh, to lean into helping Ukraine create its own industrial capability and strengthen our relationships. So uh, uh, back at DSCI, uh, we had the Ukrainians over working uh, with all of the UK uh, industry players, large and small, um, to, uh, to 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 scope out what what their highest priorities are and what they needed. Just before Christmas, I was in country with BA Systems, with Babcock, uh, with Talis, uh, and with uh, a number of SMEs. I won't name. Uh, I'll leave them to name name themselves if they if they wish. Um uh, to uh, to get going with some of those uh, initial agreements, that's uh, that's in part around making sure uh, the equipment we, that we've already provided is supported and maintained in country. Uh, it's It's also about making sure that we use the intelligence and understanding that's coming back from uh, um, uh, from the conflict and, and feed that into the innovation and technologies for new systems. And we're getting uh, getting close connections between Ukrainian R- Ukrainian businesses, large and small, and UK businesses, large and small, to provide that real uh, real time feedback loop that allows us to innovate. We'll we'll continue to build on that uh, as we go through the uh, as we go through the year, and you'll see more announcements uh, in addition to the ones that you just spoke about as we build that dynamic and relationship.
0: Mark.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I can't obviously speak to the uh, sort of business side of things. So let me just talk, touch briefly on the political side, which is it's interesting that we, there is a you know clear commitment in Ukraine itself to as far as possible begin to. And, it, and it can, all it can do at this stage is begin to try and emancipate itself from this, this re- requirement to have sort of constant assistance from the West so yes they they themselves are very very committed to actually building up their defensive industries and particularly moving beyond i mean they they've had this extraordinary sort of voluntarist approach we've seen this with sort of little workshops being set up in people's kitchens to assemble drones and 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 the like now that's been a, a real sort of lifeline But on the other hand, it's not necessarily the basis for a sort of a a, a long term industrial strategy. So sort of moving beyond that. And it's interesting that that one of the one of the issues that uh, the former commander in chief uh, Zaluzhni raised, which wasn't controversial, was precisely this this need for a a domestic industry. And that reflects, I think, three things. One is just simply the the practicalities. It would be a lot handier to have their own industries also producing. Secondly, external political realities. And, you know, we we have to be honest about the fact that, that there are certain sort of potential future concerns about whether or not the West will be willing and able to provide whatever Ukraine needs. And that sort of, to a degree, is, is, is connected with concerns about what would happen if Donald Trump became, again, American president, given the sort of the, the, the nature of his rhetoric. But it also, I would say, reflects... Uh, a wider political desire within Ukraine itself to move away from from being, shall we say, a a supplicant into being an ally. And, you know, again, looking to the future and particularly looking towards NATO membership, which is clearly from their point of view, understandably, regarded as the absolute cornerstone of any long term security for for the country to be able to actually be able to rely on the sort of article 5 guarantees of mutual protection in that context this is also seen as being part of their offer part of why ukraine can actually make a case that it is worth having within NATO, not just simply for Ukraine's sake, but for the the whole alliance's sake. So I I do think this is absolutely, uh, as Andy has said, you know, a a really important area that is moving rapidly because not just because of obviously the, the commitment from Ukraine's Western partners, but also very much from within Ukraine itself.
0: Mark, you referred to a um, uh, potential presidency of Donald Trump in the U.S., so I would like to tease out a bit more information from you on this on this question. And, of course, there's been a lot of talk about what this potential presidency might mean for the war in Ukraine, with um, risks ranging from reduced support to Ukraine, but also reduced U.S. attention to Europe and, and its defense and the U.S. involvement in the European security. So, in your view... Are we sufficiently, as Europeans, prepared for these potential risks?
1: Yeah, I mean, however uncomfortable I am to have the words tease and to Trump used in the same sentence. I mean, I think that if we look at the American situation, we we need to be a little bit more, I think, uh, down to earth about what, what's likely to happen. Trump is known for having often exceedingly uh, loose rhetoric that does not actually play out in, in reality. Frankly, we can look at actually what happened in, in his first presidency, where for all his talk about his wonderful relationship with Putin, he doesn't seem to have met an autocrat he doesn't like. But nonetheless, actually, US policy towards Russia was tougher at the end of the Trump presidency than it has been at any point since 1991. So you know, given that, that Congress now effectively has a veto on sort of moves that he might make, Although I think a a Trump presidency might well be distinctly uncomfortable and certainly disruptive for the Western alliance. And he might quite fancy the idea of being the man who can actually sort of broker some kind of deal, which would almost invariably be an ugly piece as far as Ukraine is concerned. I I, I don't think we we should be quite assuming that, that things are going to be catastrophic. But that said, the irony is that in some ways he may well be doing everyone a service by his rhetoric, in that it really does highlight the degree to which Europe still, in my opinion, has not properly woken up to the security needs of the current environment. That it's all very well saying, okay, well, you know, we will now spend the appropriate 2% of GDP that is meant to be the sort of the NATO absolute minimum, even though that's a fairly arbitrary figure. And as Andy has, has noted, it's still well below the kind of amounts of money that were being spent during the actual Cold War, even though we're now in a cold and occasionally flaring to hot war. But in that context, it's not just about spending now. It's if you have been underspending historically, you have a massive shortfall to make up. And this, for example, is very much the problem Germany is grappling with, um, you know, about the fact that it, it clearly ha- has not spent. So I think in, in terms of Europe, we have to recognize that this is not actually just simply about the Ukraine war. This is not just simply about the Trump presidency. This is about getting serious about security. And in this respect, I mean I would say that the UK is, is ahead of the curve. It has some particular challenges in that it's still in some ways trying to do it all, you know, maintain a, a, a credible ground warfare component while also also you know actually having a world bestriding Royal Navy and also having a nuclear deterrent. So, I think you know that that does create particular challenges that, let's say, if you're a landlocked smaller European country you don't have to face. But nonetheless, you know in that context, given that we interlock within alliances rather than generally anticipate to be fighting wars ourselves, you know Britain has demonstrated what what can be done. But generally speaking, I, I think it, it is fair to say that however intemperate Trump is and however little he seems to understand quite how NATO works, Nonetheless, he is actually pointing at a a genuine issue, which is how does Europe prepare to defend itself rather than just simply assuming that it can always rely on Uncle Sam to bail them out?
0: I couldn't agree more. And well, keeping in mind the fact that we've just discussed how important it really is to become serious about our security. Andy, we we uh, highlighted that link between the ongoing war um, in Ukraine and how it affects the UK and our security interests as well. So to finish this conversation, I would like to, to ask you the question about how can we make sure that the media and the wider public, most importantly, in the UK maintains its support um, of Ukraine as the war continues.
2: Well, like I think uh, I think we we do um, what what we are doing together today, actually, which is to help people understand that this is something that really affects them, and it affects their uh, it affects them domestically in terms of their uh, in, in terms of the money in their pocket and how much they're paying for uh, paying paying in their mortgages. Um, and it affects the way of life they want to live. I mean, one of the huge privileges of being British is listening to uh, other nations talk about how brilliant living in Britain is. Uh, it's one of my real pleasures uh, uh, is, uh, is, is that I get to travel around the world uh, and talk to people from many, many different nations. And as I do that, um, so many people are envious of the quality of life that we have, the freedoms that we have. Uh, and a democratic uh, and a democratic way of life. And I think we've just got to keep re-emphasizing to people that that is not a uh, that is not something that you hold easily. That is something you hold because you maintain a strong and credible deterrent from people who would wish to take that away from you. Uh, and uh, and you work collectively with like-minded nations to create a global environment uh, that that enforces that. So for us, we've just got to keep it uh, relevant uh, to people's individual circumstances and what it means to them, Uh, and the more often that we can do that, the better.
0: Andy and Mark, thank you so much for joining me today for this conversation and for helping our listeners to understand why the ongoing war in Ukraine matters to the UK and our national security interest. And of course, thank you for listening to Defence Talks, Securing UK Advantage, brought to you by the Council on Geostrategy in partnership with ADS and sponsored by BE Systems. If you would like to submit a question for our next episode, please email them to defense Talks at geostrategy.org.uk. And you can also find our our upcoming podcast episodes on our website, www.geostrategy.org.uk slash Defence Talks. Thank you and until next time.